Broadcasting from Purple Earth. As a civilization, we must be car free. <laughs> I'm afraid that you have rather a weak grasp of reality. Your reality, sir, is lies and balderdash, and I'm delighted to say that I have no grasp of it whatsoever! Welcome to A Different Reality, where wonderful things are possible. Earth Day was last weekend, so this week we take a look at how it went. We meet some random representatives of a new generation of environmentalists, and ask them what it means to be an environmentalist. While hanging out at the rally, we met some government scientists who talk about the nature of the Upper Mississippi River bioregion, and ways that it's different from how it used to be. Finally, we talk about what it takes to be car-free, which can help save the Earth and save yourself a lot of money and stress. Lots to talk about coming up on A Different Reality. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to A Different Reality. My name is Abby Z. I'm Rosie. The weather outside Purple Earth Studios this week has been gray and gloomy. Gray and gloomy. Yeah, it was pretty cold and windy last weekend, and then it never really got better after that, did it? No, we had a sunny but windy and cold day for the Earth Day festivities, and the rest of the week has been cloudy and chilly. Not what we think of as balming spring weather. So we look forward to May Day and warmer days ahead. Our daily online reading list includes the Guardian newspaper from Great Britain and the Christian Science Monitor, a progressive-leaning American paper. And they each had stories this week on the controversy surrounding the proposed construction of wind farms. Wind farms are where an array of wind turbines is set up on a breezy expanse of land, and enough electricity is gathered to supply a small city. These things are controversial because the wind turbines are not small. They each stand as high as a 40-story building. Usually they'll have three long blades, and the blades will have a radius of 100 feet or more. If you've ever seen a wind farm, it's a pretty awesome sight when you first see it. I first saw them in mountain passes in California, endless vistas of dozens of them spinning in sync with each other. And in an area where we're accustomed to seeing nuclear power plants, oil wells on the ocean, and mountains of coal waiting to be fed to the furnaces, the sight of a wind farm is absolutely refreshing. Rosie and I both think they really look cool, and so do a lot of other people. Some people think they're ugly. They fret about wind farms disturbing scenic vistas. There are also concerns about noise from these things, and there's a worry that they may be killing birds as they fly through and get whacked by the spinning blades. On the other hand, wind energy is a renewable energy source, and we are not going to avert global warming without resorting to wind power. Over time, we've been seeing a lot of articles in The Guardian about the ambitious plans that the Brits have for wind power, and the resistance to those plans in the countryside where the wind farms would be deployed. Then the CS Monitor had a story about different proposals around the United States where wind farms are meeting resistance. In Massachusetts and New Jersey, there are fights over building offshore wind turbines. Environmentalists are challenging wind farms in California, West Virginia, and Kansas for aesthetic reasons or for fear of there being a hazard to wildlife. But the main part of the story focused on an uproar in Wisconsin, about 50 miles northwest of Milwaukee. We were very taken by the hypocrisy and nimbyism, nimby means not in my backyard, of a lot of the people quoted in the story. There was one guy in particular who said he bought an old farmhouse and moved his family there for the peacefulness, while he drives 50 miles to work in Milwaukee every day and 50 miles back. He was worried about noise from wind turbines? Now, I've lived in farm country, and I've slept near wind farms back in my hitchhiking days. And even though wind turbines do make some noise, the whir and hum of a wind turbine is nothing compared to the roaring and grinding of farm machinery at all hours of the day or night. It may look quiet and pastoral as you drive through, but farm country is actually a rather noisy place during the growing season. Now, NIMBY people and those upset over aesthetics should consider how they'd feel if a different energy-producing resource were being produced next door to them. For instance, if you're upset at seeing wind turbines when you look out over the ocean, be glad that you're not seeing oil drilling platforms. I used to live in a beach town where you could see, hear, and smell the oil wells. I would have loved to see wind turbines on the ocean instead. When we see wind turbines over the ocean, that means that someplace else, people will not have to look out onto the ocean and see oil drilling platforms. 
Same thing for the people who don't want to live near a wind farm. Some people have to live next to coal mines, and those wind turbines represent coal that isn't being mined. Isn't that a good thing? Now, on the other hand, it's true that wind farms make noise in areas that used to be very quiet. They do have a whir and a hum that's like a really big electric motor. And after all, a generator is a lot like an electric motor. The wiring's just a little different. Even though we think they look cool, is it really a good idea to plant dozens of these overgrown egg beaters onto some of our most treasured and timeless landscapes? Then there's the bird thing. We really have to be careful that we don't do a lot of harm to birds with these things. But we should also be rational in our approach and weigh the hazards against the hazards wildlife would face from escalating use of coal, oil, and nuclear power. When you come right down to it in this argument, both sides are right. Both sides of this argument, however, need to relax and take a look at the bigger picture. To us, what this proves is that every technology, no matter how benign it may seem, has its flip side. There is some way in which it is actually damaging to the environment, and or some way in which it makes life miserable for those who live nearby. One of our favorite columnists in The Guardian put everything in pretty good perspective. His name is George Monbiot. I apologize if I don't pronounce the name correctly. He usually writes on the issues of economics and social justice and sustainability. He released a column this past week that addressed one particular controversial wind farm proposal in Britain. He said that the project, quoting here, will reduce carbon dioxide emission by 178,000 tons a year. This is impressive until you discover that a single jumbo jet flying from London to Miami and back every day releases the climate change equivalent of 520 tons of carbon dioxide a year. One daily connection between Britain and Florida costs three giant wind farms. He goes on to point out a couple of paragraphs later. The government envisages a rise in British aircraft passengers from 180 million to 476 million over the next 25 years. That means a contribution to global warming that is the equivalent to the carbon savings of 1,094 of these farms. So in other words, we need to build 1,000 of these huge wind farms just to make up for the pollution generated by the increased air traffic. Mr. Bombiot raises some key points that are overlooked by many of the advocates of clean energy. Alternative technology permits us to imagine that we can build our way out of trouble. By responding to one form of overdevelopment with another, we can, we believe, continue to expand our total energy demands without destroying the planetary systems required to sustain human life. This might for a while be true, but it would soon require the use of the entire land surface of the UK. So he soon comes to the same conclusion that we do. We must reduce our consumption. There is no sustainable way of meeting current projections for energy demand. The only strategy in any way compatible with environmentalism is one led by a vast reduction in total use. Greenpeace and Friends of Earth, who support the new wind farm, make this point repeatedly, but it falls on deaf ears. It falls on deaf ears because the economic system practiced by the corporate empire does not accept any kind of restraint. They see wind farms as a means of continuing growth, meaning more production, more consumption, and more money to be made for a handful of rich people. Our rate of consumption cannot grow forever. In fact, it definitely needs to be reduced soon. Wind farms fit into a sustainable civilization, but not if we need to turn the planet into one massive wind farm. The only way we can make our civilization sustainable is by restraining our consumption to what the biosystem can sustain. is a fable by Dr. Seuss for children of all ages. It describes what happens when you ignore the ecological consequences of your actions. The first passage it happens early in the book when the Onceler arrives at the field of truffula trees. Way back in the days when the grass was still green and the pond was still wet and the clouds were still clean and the song of the Swami swans rang out in space, one morning I came to this glorious place, and I first saw the trees, the truffula trees, the bright-colored tufts of the truffula trees, mile after mile in the fresh morning breeze. And under the trees I saw brown barbalutes frisking about in their barbalute suits as they played in the shade and ate truffula fruits. From the ripulous pond came the comfortable sound of the hummingfish humming while splashing around. But those trees, those trees, 
Those truffula trees. All my life I'd been searching for trees such as these. The touch of their tufts was much softer than silk, and they had the sweet smell of fresh butterfly milk. I felt a great leaping of joy in my heart. I knew just what I'd do. I unloaded my cart. In no time at all I had built a small shop. Then I chopped down a truffula tree with one chop, and with great skillful skill and with great speedy speed I took the soft tuft and I knitted a thneed. The instant I finished I heard a gazump. I looked. I saw something pop out of the stump of the tree I'd chopped down. It was sort of a man. Describe him? That's hard. I don't know if I can. He was shortish and oldish and brownish and mossy, and he spoke with a voice that was sharpish and bossy. Mister, he said with a sawdusty sneeze, I am the Lorax. I speak for the trees. I speak for the trees, for the trees have no tongues. And I'm asking you, sir, at the top of my lungs, he was very upset as he shouted and puffed, what's that thing you've made out of my truffula tuft? For a few years, a while back, Rosie and I, mostly Rosie, were organizing a community Earth Day celebration um, with the help of a lot of the local university students who were around at the time. And it went well for a while and it suddenly died out one year. Over the last several years, a variety of groups were each having their own Earth Day events and it really fragmented the movement and it hurt the attendance for everybody. This year there was a pair of very energetic young women, one from each of the local universities. And they got everybody into a room and set about organizing a kind of a grand unified Earth Day event. There were about 50 kids in the room when we went to one of the early meetings, and they were all totally gung-ho. They planned an ambitious series of events during the week of Earth Day, and then they quickly had the bases covered for organizing the big rally on Saturday. We said, yay, we don't have to do it. And we discreetly stepped back and watched the kids take the ball and run with it. We made it to the big rally on Saturday with our tape recorder. Now at this time of year, in this part of the world, it can either be stunningly beautiful outside, or it can be cold and rainy. This year it was cold and windy, but at least it was sunny. Now we have a big park with a big band shell right next to the Mississippi River, and they had a crowd of a few hundred people, pretty respectable in this town. Now around the perimeter there were various environmental organizations and even some businesses that had information tables set up. On the stage was the keynote speaker, Eustace Conway, and he was speaking as we arrived. Now Eustace Conway is the founder of Turtle Island Preserve. It's an environmental education center in North Carolina where primitive survival skills are practiced and preserved and taught. The work he does is really important and it's really valuable. And we'll put a link to Turtle Island Preserve on our website. But he didn't really impress us as the kind of speaker that's going to energize a crowd. Now as we sat down to absorb the setting, he was into this question and answer session with the assembled crowd, and he'd wandered into a long and laborious dissertation on tanning, as in tanning skins that you peel off of dead animals. So let's take a break and go meet the crowd, shall we? The first guy we talked to was staffing not one, but two tables. He is the kind of heroic activist you find in a lot of places like this. My name is Rick Comfort. I'm with uh, Clean Water Action right now full-time and also doing a lot of uh, other work with uh, Sierra Club, Water Sentinels and other groups in Wisconsin. I've got two booths here today. I'm working with several other people trying to help people understand what is um, clean electricity. Right now we're working on water issues in Wisconsin. It's one of our biggest ones. How do we get there? We get the coal-fired power plants to quit putting stuff into the air. 
How do you live differently because you're an environmentalist? Three hours again, he was mentioning even two more hours, but there's the reduce, reuse, and recycle. Just think about everything you do day to day. Um, do I really need to leave every light on in the house? A lot of people do. It's ridiculous. If I'm not using something, I turn it off. You said there were five hours. What are the other two? Yeah, we had learned two more today. There's a gentleman speaking right now. He's talking about rethink, rethink, and the other one was uh, refuse, refuse to take things that we don't uh, really need. So Rick seems to get it, but how about the kids? It's pretty safe to assume that at this event, they all consider themselves environmentalists. But how do they define that? And does that set of values influence the way they live their day-to-day -day lives? We went to as many of these young adults as we could and asked each one the same three questions. Are you an environmentalist? Why do you think so? And in what way do you live differently because you're an environmentalist? Are you an environmentalist? Yeah. Um, I guess yes. Uh, yeah. Depends what you consider an environmentalist. But so many different terms for it. Are you an environmentalist? Yes. I like the environment. I don't know what, what's an environmentalist. Uh, I would not consider myself an ex activist in any way, but I do believe the environment is highly important. Um, I believe so. Do you consider yourself an environmentalist? Uh, sure. Yes, I do. I'd say so. Can you explain why you consider yourself an environmentalist? Because uh, I'm aware of the environment that's around me and I respect it. Um, I try to recycle as much as I can and reuse all my papers that I print things off for at school. Because I'm trying to preserve the earth. Started always fighting for the underdog. As education has gone on, I realized the importance of uh, protecting the environment. Um, I'd move away from saying I'm an environmentalist, more of like a human consciousness changer. I think before we could save the environment, we really need to uh, change the way we think about things. It's more than just recycling, it's uh, you, you have to start changing the human conscious, the human psyche before you can save the environment. Because I like nature and I'm a natural person. I believe if you live in it, you gotta deal with it, and you can't really, you go, if anywhere you go somewhere and there's trash in the environment, it's just irritating because you see people throwing stuff away, and when you enjoy it as much as I do, it's very irritating to see your places that you go ruined a lot of times. Because I care about the earth and I do my best to take care of it. Why do you consider yourself an environmentalist? I guess because I, I do what I can to treat the environment well, to make sure I take care of it, and to do things that aren't going to adversely affect it. Because I care about the future of our planet. <laughs> okay, why do you consider yourself an environmentalist? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know, maybe because, because of a conscious awareness of uh, my place uh, in the world and the environment, uh, the interconnectedness of things. Is there anything that you do, any way that you live your life differently because you're an environmentalist? I uh, don't litter, uh, try to conserve things, uh, not buy into the big money market. Well, in the summer I try and bike places as many times as I can so that, you know, the gases don't get into the air and ruin the environment. I ride my bike every day instead of driving a car. Um, I try to buy products that don't have very many packaging on them or so I'm not wasting as much. I don't know, I try to do things that I know will make an impact. Yes, um, I specifically don't own a car because I'm an environmentalist. I walk, I ride my bike, um, I try to buy organic foods whenever my meager uh, living can afford it. I, um, you know, I don't turn on the lights very often. I try, there's a lot of little things that I try to do. I recycle, I hunt. About it, I guess. Uh. Is there anything in your day-to-day -day life where you live differently because you're an environmentalist? Um, mainly my food consumption a lot of times. I come from a farming family and a lot of the food I try to eat is natural or at least freshly grown because okay. at least that way you know that you're eating something that's not so preservative ridden and you're really supporting a lot of the local farmers which is another big part of if you can support them you can support a lot of other things that we can use a lot less natural resources in a lot of times because you see all the wrappings that people use and all the grocery stores all the plastic if you can avoid that buy something from a farmer it's fresh you're a lot better off you're not wasting as much I like to make sure I recycle um, do the basics like turn off the light conserve water basic things like that 
I recently opened a store that carries all environmentally friendly products and I try to use those products myself. Um, try to stick with things that are organic and natural and recycled. Um, recycle. Um, yeah, try not to use my car. Is there anything that you do differently in your day-to-day -day life because you're an environmentalist? Oh yeah, every day I make conscious decisions. Uh, simple things, uh, the food I choose to eat. Uh, when I go to the store, simple things, not bringing a bag to, for groceries. Um, I don't know, every day riding my bike to campus and around town. So a lot of things. After we cruised the crowd of hopeful 20-somethings and 30-somethings, we found someone closer to our own age. Are you an environmentalist? I am. Why are you an environmentalist? I'm not quite sure. Because <laughs> I, I like to fight. What is it that makes you believe you are an environmentalist? I find myself being grumpy about a lot of things that I'm observing going on lately. I was heartbroken just a week ago when I found a tree had been cut out of a, one of my favorite parks, one of my favorite trees. Is there anything that you do differently in your day-to-day -day life because of your being an environmentalist? Yeah, I complain a lot more about development. <laughs> you're not gonna, you're not gonna air this, though, are you? We might. Okay. <laughs> Just be, be sure you mention landscape architect in your introduction, would you please? <laughs> that was our friend Jay Fernholtz, and what makes him a hero is not that he is a landscape architect, but that he can handle going to boring meetings to confront boneheaded bureaucrats head on. Thanks, Jay. At the Earth Day rally last weekend, we met two gentlemen from the United States Geological Survey Environmental Science Center. They had an information table set up there. Yeah, they work for the government. Specifically, their agency is a part of the Interior Department. Um, as they explained it to us, the Environmental Science Center is responsible for scientific research. These guys are real authorities on the ecosystems of the Upper Mississippi River bioregion. I'm Randy Hines. I'm a wildlife biologist with U.S. Geological Survey. We asked him to describe this bioregion and to relate what it's like now relative to how it was before the European settlers arrived. The upper Midwest eco-region eco or ecosystem is uh, primarily made up of uh, what used to be the prairie, uh, oak savanna prairie, and wetland complex and it's it's forever been changed based on agriculture and and removal of the forest so it's primarily gone back to a uh, more open area that doesn't have as much uh, uh, plant communities that we used to have typically the mississippi river was was thought of for most of the historical records shows that the mississippi river was uh, free and meandering and uh, it typically went dry sometimes in the summer then it would get wet during high periods of spring rains and snowfall and melt in the springtime 
and over time we tried to harness that. We wanted to get commercial uh, products out of out of the upper Midwest. So by doing that, we started building uh, wing dams to harness the river and push the water to the main channel. And we also wanted to try to close off parts of the river so that water didn't go back there. We wanted to really control it. So over that time of controlling it, uh, we, we essentially changed the ecosystem. It went from being a wetland, an intermittent wetland that was periodically wet during periods of the year and dry during other periods of the year. We had a great um, diversity of habitat types out there, floodplain forests and, and oak savannas and prairies and everything mixed together. And, and one of the biggest problems is that once we started cut, cutting off the water to, to certain regions, we started changing those habitats. So our diversity in plant and animal life changed. At one end of the table, a big guy with a big beard was giving tours of a tray filled with little creepy crawly things. I'm Bill Richardson. I'm an aquatic ecologist with the USGS. This is native stuff that you'll find in wetlands and backwater lakes in this area. And so I've just shown a, a, some examples of some of the organisms you might find in your local backwater. This guy right here, this is a large uh, tadpole, and it's from uh, a green frog, and it's the only tadpole that overwinters as a tadpole. All the other amphibian or frogs overwinter as frogs, you know. So they have an advantage when they come out in the spring. They're already large. Uh -huh. They hatch into a frog that's quite large. This thing is a predaceous diving beetle larvae, and so it's a predaceous uh, insect. It's and, like about an inch long. Yeah, and it's got big mandibles, and it eats small insects and things like that. Uh, it'll it'll hatch out as an adult beetle sometime this summer. Here we have a two-inch long, looks like a hot green hot dog. It really it's yeah. the it's the larvae of a fly called a crane fly, and this thing That's lives. The larvae in, of a fly? Yes, it is. How big is that fly? <laughs> about that long, oh about an inch or two long, and it it feeds. The thing looks like a worm with a shell on it. Exactly, exactly. But it feeds on leaf leaf litter, de decaying leaves. And it's eating the fungus off those leaves is what it's doing. Wow. But it's an important part of the consumer decomposition food, food chain in this system. Here are large snails. These are limnia. These are swamp snails. And you only find them where there are no fish because fish love to eat these things. And they're very abundant where they are. They're very abundant. See how large that is. Uh, but, but fish like bluegill and young bass, they, they love to eat snails. So many of the cleaners that we use around our houses are quite toxic. It's really easy to make our own non-toxic cleaners with stuff that most of us have around. For a good glass cleaner, mix equal parts white vinegar and water in a spray bottle. Spray your glass, wipe with a clean rag, and wipe dry with a newspaper. For more earth-friendly cleaner recipes, check our website at www.purpleearthpleaarth.net. If you're listening to this in your car, or if you are someone who depends on your car to maintain your life, we hope you can pay special attention to this segment. We have a series of suggestions on how you can reduce stress in your life and keep thousands of dollars in your pocket that you'd otherwise be spending every year. We're going to talk about the joy of being car-free. We'll talk a little bit about why being car-free is a good idea, just in case you don't already know. Then we'll talk about how we got motivated to become car-free, and then we'll talk about how you too can become car-free. In case you haven't noticed, driving is expensive in the monetary sense. Fuel is becoming more and more expensive, even in the United States, which has some of the most inexpensive gasoline in the developed world. Cars, and when we talk about cars, we also mean small trucks, SUVs, minivans. We're talking about privately owned motorized vehicles used for general transportation. Cars are expensive to buy. They're expensive to maintain, and they're expensive to feed. Registration is expensive, and insurance is really expensive. 
They are also expensive in the sense of time. Much of our time in our cars is filled with stress, dealing with traffic on our more and more crowded roadways, or figuring out how to navigate the increasingly complex highway network and having to deal with the frantic pace we're forced to keep in order to reclaim the time that the corporate empire steals from us. Then every year we have to deal with the registration process, which for many of us means standing in long lines at the motor vehicle department and submitting our cars for inspection with more long lines. Collectively, we pay an exorbitantly high price to maintain the driving culture. Think of all the land paved by highways, the expensive engineering of major metropolitan interchanges, the bridges, the tunnels. Then there's all the space and infrastructure devoted to parking, from our driveways and garages, to the space on the sides of the streets, to the endless acres and blocks of parking lots and car parks, to the mammoth concrete structures that shelter cars in some cities. Then there's the massive infrastructure of our fuel supply, from the filling stations to the tanker trucks that supply them to the oil refineries and pipelines and the oil wells in much of our countryside, and worse, oil drilling platforms in the ocean, the Arctic, and other environmentally sensitive areas. Then there are the supertankers and the rest of the infrastructure for the overseas transport of oil, which is often responsible for a high-profile devastating catastrophe when these tankers spring a leak. So make no mistake about it, everything that oil touches becomes a black, sticky, gooey, tarry mess. Most petroleum products, including gasoline, are nasty, toxic substances, and they toxify anything they touch. This is reason enough for our civilization to minimize its use with the aim of giving it up completely. Many people will suggest alternative fuels as a more sustainable solution. Alternative fuels are only a small part of a sustainable civilization, because those who suggest alternative fuels are still envisioning a society that commutes and consumes. It means that we are still building cars and consuming the resources that that requires. It means we are still building highways and parking lots. It means that we are using alternative fuels to continue the inefficient standard of one person, one car. The answer is not to go to alternatively fueled cars, but it is to get rid of our need for cars, period. As a civilization, we must be car-free. Motorized transportation must adapt to sustainable fuels. Fuel cells, biodiesel, alcohol, pedal power, and animal power all have their appropriate uses. But sustainability means minimizing our consumption and minimizing our need for transportation. And the use of motors should be made more and more unnecessary. People should live where they work and work where they live, and our supplies should come from our own communities and regions as much as possible. A certain amount of transportation will always be necessary for logistics and recreation, but it can be done in a way that's far more efficient in both practical and economic terms than they are now. Rosie and I are proud to say and to proclaim that we are now car free. For a couple minutes, we'll share with you some personal history on how we arrived at this point. For me, it started when I was a student and I had a job 30 miles away from where I live. I had to deal with the stress of commuting 30 miles to work each day. I started getting speeding tickets. I started to pay a lot of money for gas and maintenance on my car. And when my old clunker finally broke down, I couldn't keep my job. And that's when I learned that that dependency was not a good thing. Not much later, I had a job at a shopping mall on the edge of town while I was uh, living in the center of town. I borrowed a bike. I didn't have a car at the time. It was the month of December, and I had to ride in snow. I had to ride in cold. It had, I had to ride in conditions that I never thought that I'd ever have to ride a bike in. And I learned that it wasn't that hard. I learned that as long as the distance was reasonable, biking to work is viable in any weather. Several years after that, 
I spent a summer living more or less as a homeless person, but it was a lot more comfortable than it sounds, in the small community of Isla Vista. It's a little college town adjacent to the University of California at Santa Barbara. It's often described as the most densely populated square mile west of the Mississippi River. Everybody gets around there by bike. It's a community that's densely populated enough that it's much more functional for bikes than it is for cars. Some of the first bicycle carts for hauling cargo behind a bike were actually designed and built there, and I lived there at a time that some of this activity was taking place. Near and in Isla Vista and around that area, all through Santa Barbara actually, they've got a very well-designed network of highways for bicycles. During the time that I was living there, that was when bicycling really became a part of who I was and who I am now. For most of my life, I've been a pedestrian. In fact, except for people in wheelchairs, we are all pedestrians anytime we're walking. Before I met Abby, I lived in Kansas City. It's a city as large as Los Angeles and the amount of space it takes up. And like L.A., it's a city in love with the car culture. Although I owned a car, I usually found jobs that were close to where I lived so that I could walk to work. There were grocery stores close by and a hardware store on the corner. Because I lived close to a busy street that I had to cross often, I learned about asserting my right as a pedestrian. I had a three-speed bike, but I was afraid to ride it, and I didn't know many people who rode. When I got a job downtown, I started taking the bus to work. I've always found camaraderie among regular bus riders and sometimes the drivers. I'm not perfect, though. When I do drive, it's usually fairly fast, and I even had a job in Kansas City as a delivery driver. Now that was stressful. After ending up in Philadelphia with Abby, I really learned about biking in a large city. I had a used five-speed, and we'd take rides on a nearby trail. When I felt confident enough, I started riding downtown, although during the week I'd usually either walk or ride the bus. For a while, we lived in a small town in central Wisconsin, and I had a job where I was car dependent because I worked in four different small towns in the area. The year that I spent on that job was something that got both of us to really swear off car dependent forever. We went through a lot of expense, especially with maintenance expense, and any time the car broke down, we had to desperately get it fixed right now. There was a lot of time spent in the car all the time, and there was a lot of stress with all this driving, trying to get someplace on time all the time. After that, we made a deliberate decision to always live in the city. We moved to a city that's small enough to get out of town by bicycle, but it's big enough to have everything that we need within range. Now, since then, we ride our bikes or take the bus to get to work. All of our shopping, etc., we have a trailer that we pull behind our bikes that can haul a lot of groceries. We have a tandem that we have for rides into the country in the summertime. We hardly ever drive in the summer. We just get on our tandem and take a ride. If we ever want to take a trip somewhere else in North America, we jump on the train. We are fortunate that we have a train station here. Not very many cities in the United States have one. If we ever need to go somewhere where the train doesn't go, we can rent a car for the weekend for about $30, and that happens three or four times a year. Until fairly recently, we still kept a car, our small pickup truck actually, but it, we kept it as a luxury. We had it for taking long trips or just for getting out of the city on a hot day. Eventually, we got billed for one insurance payment too many for a pickup truck that just sat in our driveway all the time. We held up the $150 cost of five car rentals in a year next to the three dollars to $500 cost of insurance and registration alone, not to mention maintenance and the space that the truck was hogging up in our driveway. We sold the truck. A year later, we're not sorry at all. As for being car-free now, yes, it has forced us to act differently. This last winter, we did most of our shopping on the bus. By carrying our groceries in small backpacks and shoulder bags, we were able to do all of our shopping for a week. If we can do it, most people can. Planning ahead is the key. It's been very liberating. Gas prices have been skyrocketing lately, and we haven't been affected. Not having a car has never stopped us from being able to do what we want to do. Ancient Egyptians and the other Africans, the Mayans, the Incans, and all the Polynesians, are all around the world a long, long time ago. People would walk wherever they had to go. Even if you're a cynical bastard who doesn't care about the earth, you want to be car free, because it'll save you thousands of dollars every year. 
Now, if you think you can't live without your car, consider this. A hundred years ago, our ancestors didn't have cars, and they got along just fine. How did they do it? Analyze the answer to that question, and you've gone a long way toward knowing how to live car-free. The most important step to becoming car-free is choosing your place to live. When you choose your place to live, transportation strategy should be your primary factor. You do not want to be dependent on a car. I'm going to use the term access a lot here. And when I say access, I'm talking about a way to get there without a car, whether that be walking, biking, or public transit. Do you have access to your workplace? Can you walk to work? Can you ride a bike to work? Can you take the bus or the train to work? Is it easy and convenient to use your favorite non-driving mode of transportation to get where you need to go? When you want to leave town, is there a train or a bus or a coach that can get you to some other city or to the big city? Is there access to the countryside or to nice parks? You want to have access to a good place to get food, whether it be your food co-op or a health food store or a mom-and-pop supermarket. You'll probably want to have access to a hardware store, maybe some sort of general merchandise kind of place. You want access to a library. You want access to a post office. You'll want access to a financial institution, and they're all in the downtowns anyway. You'll want access to wherever you get your entertainment, your movie theaters and stuff like that. You'll want access to whatever kind of places you might like to hang out, whether that be coffee shops or taverns or whatever. You may have your own special needs. You know, As for us, for example, we need to have access to a place that sells bird food. It should be noted that if you take up bicycling as a way to get around and you become more bike-centric, you may need to keep more than one bike. For instance, the bike that you ride on a smooth, paved, open road might be different than the bike that you ride over bumpy streets in the snow to bring the groceries home. Now as for us, we each have an upright bike, which is a hybrid for general purpose getting around town, and then we have what we call the limo. The limo is our tandem recumbent, which we use for long rides out in the country. Tandem means two riders on one bike, so that if one rider is stronger than the other, they can keep up with each other and talk to each other along the way. Recumbent means it's the kind of bike where you sit back in a seat with a backrest, and then you pedal with the pedals out in front of you. We even have a trailer for the limo, so we can take our camping gear along with us on long-distance trips. It's something that we call bikepacking. Our bikepacking adventures are a whole other series of stories which we hope to get to sometime. It's funny that the people that ask how we can ride when it's so cold out think nothing of riding a snowmobile when it's 20 below zero, when you're just sitting down, not exerting any physical energy, riding this thing that's going 50 miles an hour in the cold weather. You can dress for it. You can wear the right goggles for it. There's all the right clothes that you can wear to be able to handle that kind of cold and in the wind. Furthermore, when you're on a bicycle, you're working. You're inside your, I call it my moon suit. You're inside your moon suit exercising. And it's actually, when I get to my destination in the wintertime, I'm sweating a lot heavier than I am in the, at least the early summer. There's a reason for this, now is the time to speak of the problem, trouble in mind. Sick of the traffic, choking the towns, freaking me out, bringing me down. Knock down houses, build more lanes, once was a problem, but now it's insane. My solution, it's one that I like, it's murder. The acoustic motorbike. So on. Get up on your bike. I go on. Get up on your bike. Thank you.
A big shout out to our local library branch. Not only a great source for books, but also CDs, videos, and DVDs. We love our libraries and librarians. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I have a little brainstorm to file under the spirit of collectivism. Occasionally, we are faced with a task that requires an expensive tool. Oftentimes, the only way to get one's hands on that tool is to go down to the home center and buy it. We end up with our tool sheds and garages filled with things like snowblowers, lawnmowers, extension ladders, power tools, and all kinds of other stuff. Stuff that we use maybe once every two weeks or once or twice in a year. Now, there seems to be a lot of waste in this kind of underutilization of tools. At the same time, if we look into our collective tool sheds, we're likely to find a lot of duplication. Imagine this. Everybody in the neighborhood brings their tools together at one place. How many lawnmowers are there? How many extension ladders? How many power saws? And on and on. Now think about this. If you didn't have a tool yourself, could you borrow it from a neighbor who does? Would you be willing to loan one of your tools to a neighbor who needs it for a quick job? Maybe you can see where I'm going with this. The people that sell tools are perfectly happy to see all of this consumption. But this kind of overconsumption and waste is not a sustainable practice, and it makes our collective lives a lot more expensive. It's not necessary for every one of us to own his or her own copy of each of these expensive tools. What we actually need is access to these tools, which is a wholly different concept. I saw an illustration of small-town collectivism when we had our last snowstorm of the season. We are legally obligated to shovel about 50 feet of sidewalk in front of our house when it snows, and then we usually shovel another 70 or 80 feet of paths around the house. Due to climate change, it seems that our snowstorms have been pretty gentle in the last few years, just a few inches at a time, which is no big deal to shovel by hand. But in March, we got 14 inches, about 35 centimeters of wet and heavy snow. So I hauled the shovel out to do my civic obligation out front and found that one of the neighbors had already cleaned up the entire block with his snowblower. Now, it wasn't hard to understand how this happened. He had this expensive machine that's usually overkill for the kind of shoveling jobs we have here in the city. Here we had a storm that this machine was made for, the only storm like it this year, and it seemed a pity to put the snowblower away after the five minutes it took for this guy to plow his own walk. So he kind of let himself get carried away, and he took the few extra minutes to go up and down the block, making life easier for all of his neighbors. So I thought, why should this block need anything more than that one snowblower? But at the same time, it's not fair that this one guy should bear the expense of maintaining the snowblower that keeps the whole block clean. So the brainstorm is tool collectives, kind of like a tool library. Someone's in charge of keeping track of all the tools, and the members can check them out and return them as needed, the way you do that with library books now. The cost of collecting and maintaining the tools is shared by the members, and each member has access to a complete collection of efficient tools at a cost that is far less than the cost of owning even a small subset of the tools in the collective. Now, I think this kind of thing is being done in a few places, and if you know of something like this going on, please let us know about it. I know that in some places, groups have applied this concept of collective ownership to cars, vans, and pickup trucks. The beauty is that we aren't spending money on expensive tools that we only need once in a while. And more importantly, we're not consuming resources to produce all these unnecessary extra tools. And then we all have more storage space for other junk. I mean, um, things. Um, yeah, stuff. came across some information in one of the magazines we received that some of you might find useful. The second annual Bioneers Conference will be held in Seattle, Washington on August 4th through 7th, 2005. This event was conceived to conduct educational and economic development programs in traditional farming practices, environmental restoration, and biological and cultural diversity. 
Their homepage is www.bioneers.org. Action for Nature is seeking applications from students around the world, 8 to 16 years old, for its 2005 Young Echo Hero Awards program. It recognizes individual accomplishments of young people who've carried out environmental action projects. Go to www.actionfornature.org for guidelines and an application form. The Environment News Service is a daily international wire service of the environment. Currently, thousands of websites link to headlines and story briefs in this site. Check it out at www.ens-newswire.com. And we will have links to all of these sites on our website at www.purpleearth.net. Back this week, we did get one piece of email from a friend of ours out in the hills who said that he liked the cardinal piece. Thank you very much. As for anybody else, if you have any feedback or anything to say to us, you can contact us through our website at www.purpleearth.net. We love to hear from you. We feel that there is an apology in order because last week we said that Ronald Reagan was about as intelligent as a sock puppet. It's been pointed out to us that that's a rather insulting comment, so we apologize if we insulted any sock puppets with that remark. I was fixing some pipes when that old nuisance Lorax came back with more gripes. I am the Lorax! He coughed and he whiffed. He sneezed and he snuffled. He snargled. He sniffed. Wurzler! He cried with a cruffulous croak. Wurzler! You're making such smogulous smoke! My poor swami swans! Why, they can't sing a note! No one can sing who has smog in his throat! And so, said the Lorax, please pardon my cough. They cannot live here, so I'm sending them off. Where will they go? I don't hopefully know. They may have to fly for a month or a year to escape from the smog you've smogged up around here. What's more, snapped the Lorax. His dander was up. Let me say a few words about Gloppity Glup. Your machinery chugs on day and night without stop, making gluppity glup, also sloppity slop. And what do you do with this leftover goo? I'll show you, you dirty old onceler man, you! You're glumping the pond where the humming fish hummed. No more can they hum, for their gills are all gummed. So I'm sending them off. Oh, their future is dreary. They'll walk on their fins and get woefully weary and search them some water that isn't so smeary. And then I got mad. I got terribly mad. I yelled at the Lorax. Now listen here, Dad. All you do is yap, yap, and say bad, 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 bad. Well, I have my rights, sir, and I'm telling you, I intend to go on doing just what I do. And for your information, you Lorax, I'm figuring on biggering and biggering and biggering and biggering, turning more truffula trees into thneeds, which everyone, everyone, everyone needs. And at that very moment, we heard a loud whack 
From outside in the fields came a sickening smack of an axe on a tree. Then we heard the tree fall. The very last truffula tree of them all. No more trees, no more needs, no more work to be done. So, in no time, my uncles and aunts, every one, all waved me goodbye. They jumped into my cars and drove away under the smoke-smuggered stars. Now all that was left neath the bad-smelling sky was my big empty factory, the Lorax, and I. The Lorax said nothing, just gave me a glance, just gave me a very sad, sad backward glance as he lifted himself by the seat of his pants. And I'll never forget the grim look on his face when he heisted himself and took leave of this place, through a hole in the smog, without leaving a trace. And all that the Lorax left here in this mess was a small pile of rocks with the one word, unless. Whatever that meant, well, I just couldn't guess. That was long, long ago. But each day since that day I've sat here and worried and worried away. Through the years, while my buildings have fallen apart, I worried about it with all of my heart. But now, says the Wunzler, now that you're here, the word of the Lorax seems perfectly clear. Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. So, catch, calls the Wunzler. He lets something fall. It's a truffula seed. It's the last one of all. You're in charge of the last of the truffula seeds, and truffula trees are what everyone needs. Plant a new truffula, treat it with care, give it clean water, and feed it fresh air. Grow a forest, protect it from axes that hack. Then the Lorax and all of his friends may come back. Thanks for the book, Dr. Seuss. A Different Reality is created, produced, edited, and assembled by Abby Z and Rosie of Purple Earth. You can contact us through our website at www.purpleearth.com. P-U-R-P-L-E-A-R-T-H dot net. If you like the music you hear on this show, thank Rosie, our music director. This week's playlist is on our website. I may be the director, but Avi is the engineer. Thanks, Avi. We encourage you to go to your favorite locally owned independent record store to check out this music. We have finally been approved to provide links to a popular music download service where you can buy some of the music heard on this show. We also plan to start adding links to the home websites of artists that you hear on a different reality. Keep an eye on our website at www.purpleearth.net for these links to start lighting up. The music you heard this week was... Starting with our theme song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the show, Lovers of Light by the Afro-Kelp Sound System. Driftwork from Bill Laswell and World Party doing And God Said. Uncle Meat, the main title theme by Frank Zappa, and then Widespread Panic doing some drums. X-Tribe brought us Bandy, and then Oya from Angelique Kijo. We had Adamski doing Eighth House, Osric Tentacles doing Sploosh. Tabasco Rhythm from James Asher, and Tanto Tempo, Peter Kruder remix from Sultan32. Zap Mama did Plekete, Plekete, Plekit, P-L-E-K-E-T-E, Plekit, and Poidog Pondering did the Ancient Egyptians. Then we heard from Poidog Pondering again, doing Spending the Day in the Shirt You Wore, and Luke from Keller Williams. Luca Bloom did our all-time favorite bicycling song, The Acoustic Motorbike. And then we heard Colonel Bruce Hampton in the Aquarium Rescue Unit doing Time is Free. Then Nicola Conte brought us Forma 2000 and Lost Tribes from Joe Zawinol and the Zawinol Syndicate. Next week on A Different Reality, we'll look at the meanings of May Day, from its pagan origins to its adoption as a celebration of organized labor around the world. 
When you talk about organized labor, you quickly begin to talk about social justice issues. That means fairness and decency, which the workers of the world are having a hard time seeing these days. We'll also be visiting with the members of the First Nations of this region to find out what they can tell us about sustainability and other things too. The role of social justice in a sustainable civilization next week on A Different Reality. Yeah, I complain a lot more about development. <laughs> Broadcasting from Purple Earth. Whoa.